Ladies and gentlemen, it is uh, it's beyond Sunday night. It's Monday morning after the Ryder Cup. It's that late because we work really hard at golf.com. My name is Sean. His name is Dylan. There's also Luke in the room, a resident European. You may have listened last week. Luke is less happy than he was a week ago. This is the Drop Zone record-breaking 19-9 to performance for the Americans. I don't even know what to say at this point. Yeah, you sound a little sleepy over there, Sean. Maybe that's because we've, <laughs> it's late. We've made our way through. Uh, we just cooked up the remaining food in our A-frame Airbnb on Lake Michigan, and yeah, I mean now we're just sort of looking at the dregs of the Ryder Cup, and I mean, gosh, what a week it was! What a week, especially for Team USA. We started this week by talking about how the Americans had almost developed this complex where everyone in the U.S. seemed like worried about winning we this. Oh, some apologies. But on paper, it looked too obvious that the U.S. was just going to roll, and the U.S. obviously absolutely rolled. We owe some apologies, first and foremost, to Dustin Johnson. We talked for months on this podcast about this event. It's one of the most fun events in golf, we focus on it probably more than we should, but we focus on it a lot. And we spent a lot of time talking about how Dustin Johnson was not right. And to be fair, we were correct. He was not right. He has not been right really all year long. And as we saw in person on the 18th hole, Claude Harmon said, his coach, this is the best DJ's played all year because Dustin Johnson went 5-0, and Dylan, despite us calling him broken. Despite us doubting him, despite him being the number two player in the uh, number two player in the world, he was very, very good this week. He was the MVP, like obviously the MVP. Um, the only no, time that he wasn't got, close. The only time he got close to not winning a full point was in this final session when Paul Casey discovered his golf game near yeah. the end when got, the Ryder Cup was over. Got superhuman. Um, but just barely missed a birdie putt on 18. So DJ went 5-0, and the MVP. But his other then, matches weren't even close. <laughs> no, they weren't. They were dominant. And then he was also, to cap it off, the Sportsmanship Award winner <laughs> and the MVP of the post-round press conference. So big, big day. I'm trying to think of what DJ. was most impressive. His sportsmanship? <laughs> eh, probably not. What was more impressive, him going 5-0 and or him being the lightning rod in the presser, a little a little drunk, um, and just answering every question, directing well, questions. For to that, the I'd like to bring in our lead Dustin Johnson correspondent, Luke Curdine. Luke, tell us about your interactions with DJ in the post-round presser. Yeah, so uh, DJ was sort of feeling himself, I think it's fair to <laughs> you say, think? In, in the press conference, sort of uh, had some liquid courage in him. He was ready to talk to the press. He was... Uh, you know, the glow of victory was upon him. And so, so I, you know, it was one of these press conferences where it's basically just chaos. So I asked him, you know, DJ, as the oldest player on the team, which he's been talked about all week, as the lowest, oldest player on the team, uh, do you still have the stamina to be able to party with the rest of these young guys? And uh, DJ, you know, gave a fantastic answer. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. To quote him. It was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you know it was, and then he, uh, then then he challenged. He, he said, "Do you want to go or something like that?" He said, "You know, do you want to go?" <laughs> yeah, I you want to come. Yeah, it was like you want to come hang. You want a piece? 
and, and I, then he said, yeah, he said, you have no chance. Yeah. You have no chance. I don't think I've ever seen Dustin Johnson more animated ever than when I sort of politely questioned his drinking or partying abilities. This is a broad, this is a broad topic. You know, we're not I mean, here to put the, him in a box. The, the man has some partying history. So, we know that. Absolutely. And he's, and he's serious about protecting his image despite uh, him being the oldest member of this team. So, you know, and, and every other team member backed down too. Every, oh. every single one, they said, oh, no, no, DJ, DJ's the man. So. I was just amazed at how easy he looked every single session this week. He's the only only American to play five sessions. Oldest guy in the team, like we said, kind of down and out at some points this PGA Tour season, but he made it look easy. He made he made winning matches in the Ryder Cup, which is not easy, mind you. He made it look easy. Well, looking back, I guess it shouldn't be a shocker that the best player in the world was far and away the best performer for Team Europe. And that the second and third ranked players in the world were really good performers for Team USA, right? Yeah. Like that kind of makes sense. But, you know, it's match play. Like usually we've gotten used to throwing, you know, stats out the window because there's this European magic. Um, and there was... A little bit left, enough for Ian Poulter to beat Tony Finau today, which was awesome, by the way. I love that Ian Poulter is still undefeated in singles. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it just played out the way it was supposed to play out, except like the exaggerated version of that, where the entire U.S. team dominated. Everyone on the U.S. I mean, they just look, they just looked better. They played better. I don't know, Sean. I love that Poulter is still undefeated as an individual. You were there with me behind the 17th green when Shane Lowry came up to Ian Poulter's son and he dapped him up and he said, Poults, still unbeaten. You've got the effing record to hold up now. Yeah. And then Hovland came over. He said, Poulter, the fucking postman. I don't know if we're allowed to say that, but that's what he said. So I'm just relaying it. Um, we need to keep talking about the Americans for a good bit because one, there's a lot to talk about, and two, we'll save Luke's depression. I guess. Oh, this is like, I, I, this is just why it's so bad when Europe when uh, Europe loses Ryder Cups and America, by extension, wins them because it's all it just it just turns into this like such a supremacy mindset of like oh we're better this was supposed to happen <laughs> you know the, I mean, our Luke. guys are just better oh dustin johnson's the mvp you could take dustin johnson off the u.s team and they still would have won yeah you could give dustin johnson to the americans and they still would have won <laughs> oh god or to the even, to the europeans excuse that's me that's even worse um but yeah, it's it's just going to be two long years uh, because, you know, I feel like very quickly the mindset returns to like, well, this was supposed to happen and it did. So let's continue. I, I appreciate what you said there. You said this is going to be two long years. And uh, this happens every Ryder Cup. Whether the Americans win or the Europeans win, the last putt is made and suddenly it's like, oh, God, we screwed this up. What do we do for next time? We're already thinking about next time. The number of European tour, uh, European members who said, oh God, I just really want to be on that team next time. That event is 700 plus days from now. It's a long time. There's going to be people on these teams that are outside the top 100 at that point. That's kind of a fact, unfortunately. Uh, so we'll see who those people are, but it is just 
such the knee-jerk reaction, like, what the hell did we do wrong? We did so much wrong. Holy cow, when can we get another Ryder Cup? Okay, so I guess the other version of that, if we wanted to underreact to this, what would that look like? I think it would look like essentially saying, well, all the Americans did here was hold serve. Yes. They defended their home turf. That's what you do in the Ryder Cup. That's what Europe literally always does. Everything was scripted to end this way. And now I don't think we could have predicted a literal Ryder Cup record differential on the teams, but you just go down the list. The fact that they're playing on home soil, the fact that there are no European fans traveling from Europe because of travel restrictions. There's no antagonism between the fan Mm -hmm. bases. There's really no antagonism between the teams. There's no one for the European teams to like look outside the ropes to and play toward. The fact that it's on a course that was made for bombers. The fact that we do in America have the better ranked team. We do have the better rated players. I mean, I know that they held serve, but there was just a lot going in their favor and a, a very little going in the Europeans' favor. Yeah, so let's talk a little, because we will get to uh, Europe's failings and the holes in their system in a little bit, but let's talk about specifically the American success. Like, why did it work well beyond just they have this Steve you know, Stricker, phenomenal yeah. talent pool to draw from? He played an extremely safe hand of cards you've heard me make that comparison all week long he had the best team he ended up sending out the best players he found that you know what daniel berger makes a lot of sense as a guy who hits it pretty straight doesn't hit it really long he's going to be a good foursomes player with a guy who does hit it long bryson a guy who obviously mashes the ball but brings a different ball into play no one else on the team uses a bridgestone that's kind of going to throw a little bit of wrench into things. I'm going to play it safe. Bryson, you're going to play your own ball the entire week. You're sitting in foursomes, but you're out there in four balls. It, it just made a lot of sense. He didn't dabble in the Brooks and Bryson playing together BS that everybody wanted. It's just added distraction. We said this, I've said this, gosh, for weeks now. The Ryder Cup captain's main job is to do whatever he can to instill comfort in every single player on his team. And now that's different. It's kind of tricky because there are 12 egos, 12 players that you have to make comfortable in their own special little way. Daniel Berger needs to feel comfortable. So Steve Stricker says, dude, go take a nap instead of following your teammates out there on the course. It's finding comfort for every single player. I think you can find in every single thing that he did. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of like confirmation bias to all this stuff where it's like, oh, well, that that move by Steve Stricker, I knew it was going to work out. I knew that putting the Florida state guys together would be such a good move. Uh, you can't, you can't deny it at this point. The the proof's in the pudding 19 to nine. Yeah. I mean, so I guess I push back on you a bit here, Sean, because I don't necessarily think like every decision Stricker made was completely optimized. I mean, like, I don't necessarily think leaving Bryson on the bench for each alternate short session or, you know, benching JT and Cantlay, who showed no signs of slowing down at that point, or, you know, any number of different things were the right decision. But what uh, Stricker did do extremely well was have all of his guys buy into an idea that what he was doing was the right thing, uh, whether it was or not. Um, And that's something that 
honestly is like what America struggles at in this competition. It's balancing the egos and having those egos be okay with doing things they don't want to do. Um, Stricker managed to do that, I think, for two reasons, really. The first is that he had six rookies on this team. And when you have guys like Xander Shoffley, who's a technically a rookie, um, there's a certain amount of... Uh, there's a certain amount of leeway you get with him. Zander can pretend to be a rookie even though he's actually one of the best players on this team. And so he can sort of be okay going to the bench. Yeah. Um, And then the other one is that I think they just like him on a a personal level. Mm -hmm. Kind of wanted to get him one in his home state. Um, so you know, like this is not me dogging Steve Stricker. He he did a he did a fantastic job, and that is to your point. The point of a captain is to get your guys to buy in. Uh, I think this is going to get harder for America uh, for American Ryder Cup teams in the future, though. Uh, if uh, things didn't go exactly perfectly from the initial first yeah. session, yeah, there it's, was. It's easy to see how one player, for instance, would raise his hand and say, "Hey, Strick, I, I want to get out there," and then suddenly. Yeah, all sorts of things start happening. There was theoretical pressure, very theoretical pressure on this American team because people were saying, well, gosh, if you don't do it now, we got to blow things up again. That pressure, like I said, extremely theoretical. Once you're up 3-1 after the first session, it starts to wade away. But there, there just wasn't a lot of pressure on this team. We listed off the reasons why things were in their favor. I think winning for Steve Stricker on a pressure level, does not compare to winning for Tiger Woods. Uh, It will not compare to winning for Phil Mickelson at Bethpage in front of New York fans in what will be an absurd, absurd setting uh, in New York. It doesn't compare to the pressure that happens when you have, you know, when you're on the road at Europe. So this has to be the least pressurized Ryder Cup setting. And you know what? Jordan Spieth admitted to it in the post- the post round yeah he, co- he compared it to the president's that- <laughs> cup it was like a double insult he like sort of it was sort of a backhanded insult of the president's cup and of you know this week but there was something positive in that too and something i guess revealing about that because i think what he meant by that is that it was a little bit more relaxed a little bit more low-key from their end and i think there were some simple things that Stricker did that won the players over, like better access to their caddies, um, you know, spending less time doing unnecessary things, being allowed to go back to the hotel and rest up rather than, you know, going mandating, to Versailles. <laughs> yeah, going to Versailles or like mandating walking around with yes matches for if sure. you were not going to be there. I think everyone was there maybe for the first tee shot. Is that right? I'm not even sure that that's totally right or if it was just some people. Yeah, but I don't even know. Either way, it sounded like Stricker did not have big rah-rah speeches, but he did earn the trust of the players, which then just keeps it keeps you from having malcontents on the team, which seems like a, a classic American thing. Yeah, and now where's Steve Stricker at? 2-0 and as a captain, record-setting performance, at the President's Cup in Liberty at Liberty National in New, in New Jersey, record-setting performance, nineteen to nine at home, home game for Stricker in the Ryder Cup. That's pretty wild. Steve Stricker's, I yeah. guess, his campaign to be a Hall of Fame uh, golfer. Oh no 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 no. Okay, come, his, come on. this is getting ridiculous. 
ridiculous now. <laughs> he, yes, it was a good Ryder Cup for Steve Stricker. Congratulations on winning his quote-unquote major in a, in his home state. Like, very happy for him. But come on. Like, there were all sorts of reasons why this Ryder Cup went in the Americans' Yeah, favor. I listed them. And, you know, yeah, you, you listed some of them. You know, the, the better players who also happen to play better on the week. I don't necessarily think that Steve Stricker is like some Midas touch, you know, genius who's I don't going even, around and turning either. teams into gold. I, I he did he did a solid job. You but know, America got the a bit results lucky, are there, and it's you know better players. Bravo! But enough <laughs> of this whole thing. Talk. The the results are there. That's all I'll say. I don't think Steve Stricker is special at all when it comes to this stuff. I don't think he's a good quote at all when it comes to this stuff. He has the highest batting average in captainship history. It would seem, but that exists. And so how long can you ignore it? Uh, probably forever, because I don't think he's going to captain again. No, he said he was, frankly, happy to be done with it. And I think that... It's a stressful whether, gig, man. Whether he's happy to be done with it or not doesn't really matter, because he is done with it. It's a stressful gig with a ton of commitments and a ton of interviews. So busy that he wouldn't even give me time for a story for Golf Magazine. Me, the native son... You know, Sean, it's big of you to still speak positively about Captain Stricker, given, you know, he he didn't really return the favor. No. He may be a player's coach, but perhaps he's not a media Mm. coach. Well, think of that, Sean. He got the job done. Uh, What more can we say about the Americans here? Who surprised you this week? I I kind of, I answered in Tour Confidential that the unsung hero, Sneaky, was Scotty Scheffler. Um, Now... I don't think Scotty played a huge role. He played three matches, but he played with Bryson both days. And I just, all due respect to Bryson, whoever was going to play with him was going to play an interesting role with this team, was going to have to pull out a long iron instead of driver so that Bryson could get after it. Um, He was going to have to kind of answer certain questions because of who he's playing with. Scotty did that. And then he came out here and he kind of waxed John Rahm from the start, the best player in the world, the best player basically to that point in the Ryder Cup. He took John Rahm on and dropped five birdies in the first six holes at him uh, at Whistling Straits, took John Rahm out of it. And I think that's a ton for a Ryder Cup rookie, a guy who's never won a tour event. Scotty Scheffler could use this and he could, he could, I don't know, he could start running downhill, I think. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. There were five golfers on the U.S. team that did not lose a match. Two of them being Bryson and Scheffler. I mean, Scheffler was particularly impressive because, you know, he came out Sunday against John Rahm, the hottest player, probably the hottest player at the Ryder Cup and the hottest player in the world, and was four up through four against him. So that was pretty sick. Um, And then add in the fact that he went 1-0-1 in the team competition. I mean, that's... That's above and beyond success. Then you throw in Morikawa, um, Cantlay, and then, of course, Dustin Johnson at 5-0-0. Zanman. Zanman did take an L. I mean, look, it was kind of him to, to let Rory have one today. That felt like, you know, just a, a, a charitable act. I mean, that was good for everybody. So I think we can all appreciate that he did that. You know what one was one column I didn't write this week, but I was getting close to writing it? on day one was that the Americans were kind of treating the entire beginning of the week, kind of like robots. They didn't do their own gala. 
They were basically kind of talking in platitudes. We got to win this one for Strick. We'll do whatever he wants us to do. You know, it's all, it all comes down to who plays well. It's like, you know, playing gin. That's what Patrick Cantlay said. They were kind of acting like robots. They came out and played like robots. They're just kind of a bunch of killers, I thought. They're all kind of savages. Luke, your thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree, Sean. And and I think Patrick Cantlay like really embodied that. I mean, from my seat in the house, I thought he was just so immensely impressive. I mean, he went four and zero as a as a rookie who looked like a seasoned vet. And the only reason he didn't go five and zero was because he was he was sat. He played in multiple different formats. He excelled in all of them. I mean, he just looked so rock solid in so many different ways. And I was actually a little surprised because um, obviously Cantlay is an incredible player, but, you know, he's coming off the FedEx Cup, very different format, largely off the back of uh, of a ridiculously hot putter, which who knows if that's going to hold up weeks after the fact in a Ryder Cup. And he just looked so comfortable and clinical out there. I thought he was, you know, you can't sit here and say he's the MVP, but I just thought he was so impressive and he's going to be a bedrock for that US team. Yeah, well, I hope so. But Dylan, quick question, random question. If Patrick Cantlay and Dustin Johnson played a match tomorrow at Whistling Straits, who wins? Wow. I I think it would almost be, I think Dustin Johnson would be a slight favorite. Just, we're not talking about favorites. Who wins? Oh, who in your, wins in your eyes? Patrick Cantlay wins. He's the I better think so golfer too. right now. I think so too. So when it comes to being MVP, I mean, winning the four matches and sitting, uh, he could he's got essentially just as much of a right to being MVP as Dustin Johnson is. 3-0-1. So, I mean, he did have that one tie in there. So, I mean, okay. DJ's immaculate record, I guess, puts him over the top. But, yeah, I mean, it's hard to parse out exactly who's undefeated records and how they compare to other people. You know, it's based off when you play, when you sit, and, of course, like what your opponent does. So, yeah, all this match play stuff gets a little bit messy. It's funny, Tony Finau ended up on the bottom of the u.s ladder yeah but i certainly don't feel like less confident about him as a future rider why do you say that i I just think i don't know he just looked really good that day one he came out uh, and he and english played awesome mostly what did he do since then mostly finau played awesome he came out he made like seven birdies in like 13 holes um losing ian poulter Lost, you know, lost. Others have done that before. Lost his other match. Lost his other match also, but you know, didn't really play that bad. Just got, just got beat. My main point being, like, some of this stuff. When you just look at the records afterwards, not, not going to be impressive. Not going to be a good look for Phoenix. Yeah, the thing about the Americans, that was all their records look good. Everyone they scored a full good. point. Uh, Jordan Spieth. Only two guys with, or three guys with losing records. Finau, his partner Harris English, um, who again charitably lost to Lee Westwood. That was huge, huge for Lee Westwood in his Ryder Cup career. Uh, and then Jordan Spieth, who finished one, two, and one. Harris English got some good karma coming his way. He did. And, some and good golf karma. Just to explain that, Lee Westwood had lost six consecutive Ryder Cup matches dating back, what? 
two plus Ryder Cups at this point. And this was going to be this was going to be last seven, match and this was also going to be Ryder Cup career. The, yeah, the last match of his Ryder Cup career. He even acknowledged that uh, he faced reality afterwards, um, which is maybe a good transition point here, Sean. Unless there's anything else you want to pop off let's, on let, the U.S. Let's, team right let's now. talk about what it was like for us. I mean, that's why people are going to listen to this podcast because us three were out. boots on the ground around the 18th hole all over the yep. course inside the ropes we were among and not the few not we were among the many people inside the ropes um at this golf course and towards the end it became we may have done the most lingering though <laughs> we we did a ton of lingering a ton of <laughs> I'll call it eavesdropping tiny little conversations with a lot of players um and caddies and coaches and i guess uh i kind of hung around victor hovland a lot i asked him shortly after his match hey man did you have fun this week because he was like looked like he was kind of kicking himself a little bit he said yeah but i should have kicked some more ass <laughs> and i was like that's kind of a sweet sweet response from a kid who's just getting his first taste at the Ryder cup uh the european team was sullen but supportive of each other you know coming into the week we talk. Everyone talked about how they play for each other. It's such a uh, unified team, and that was very much on display. I mean, they had everything going against them. I thought that they were pretty graceful the entire week. I thought they were great sports. I thought that they had plenty of reason to be upset at things that were yelled at them. Uh, all basically the fact that they were running uphill with with everything that was pitted against them. I thought they were great. And then uh, inside the ropes, you know, towards the end, they were having a great time. Vic Hovland was drinking some tequila mixed drink. Uh, Westwood was sipping on the gin and tonic. Everyone was just passing out hugs, saying how proud they were of each other. Everyone was proud of Victor. Everyone was like, look, you're going to be in this a lot. You're going to be in many Ryder Cups, buddy. Um, yeah, it was it was kind of fun to see that they could still have fun when they got their butts kicked. There was this really poignant moment where Lee Westwood was still battling Harris English. Just, you know, at this point I was just hoping he would get a half point. Um, but he was still out there, I think on 16 or 17. And Sergio took off with a couple other Europeans to go cheer him on and have him come in. Um, which was sweet because, you know, we were standing by the 18th green and there was Sergio walking back up the 18th fairway to go and, and chase down his guy. But then the, the flip side of that was there was this really funny moment where Bern Wiesberger had just ditched the group to go find some beers. And so he came back holding, I think, five Heinekens. And he was kind of like, wait, where'd everybody go? <laughs> and, you know, Sergio and a, a, yeah, a couple other guys had gone up uh, back up the 18th. So Wiesberger's looking around and he's like, you know, offers one to John Rom. John Rom's like, no, man, I don't really drink beer. Weird. It's apparently not his thing. Weird. Uh, there are a couple uh, wives and girlfriends there. He offered them to them, but seltzer you know, ladies. This, these are changing times. These <laughs> these ladies are drinking seltzer. They're maybe having a a mixed drink. So <laughs> there's Burn just literally can't give away. Uh, these Heinekens and uh, eventually made his way back to also follow Westwood. But it was a pretty funny moment. All right, Luke, what was your favorite thing inside the ropes? Honestly, to me, it's all those little conversations and interactions that you see the assistant captains have. Uh, 
I don't think the. I mean, I was I was about to say I don't think they're hugely important, but I came away from this week thinking that they actually kind of are. You know, I, I saw like Zach Johnson, uh, you know, running up to US players and like talking about them, giving them some little motivational talks. Uh, today, Phil Mickelson uh, was watching Bryson um, the whole before he closed out the match and he was having a quick chat with Zander who was joking about giving the European teams one and, you know, smiling through it and taking it on the chin because that would be good for the competition. Obviously joking, but it's, it's interesting to see the way these guys mingle and of course when it's Phil Mickelson involved too, just hearing the entire crowd just you know he was like the biggest celebrity out there that's the guy Uh, yeah Phil Phil and Amy they were they were the biggest stars on the ground this week maybe outside of Michael Jordan but um yeah they're they're just these little moments and and I did come away from this contest thinking that you know these players gravitate towards certain assistant captains and that does make them feel more comfortable and it's it's funny because it's easy target to make fun of all these guys but I actually do think they play a pretty important role and they're very much like on the ground the fingers in the pie uh, making things happen definitely necessary and I think in the modern world of of raised egos and 12 guys that have brands and foundations and social media. Yeah. It's more, it's probably good that they have distinct handlers, uh, that are, are kind of willing to do whatever they need for them at any given time. Um, in terms of the show, Dylan, anything else you saw out there that you think people should be aware of? Well, the Rory interview was pretty, it was a pretty powerful moment. Um, and I should actually say interviews because, uh, I happened to be out there as Rory and Xander were finishing their match. Rory came off having beaten him three and two, I think it was, uh, on the 16th. That is correct. And then he did this interview with Sky Sports. Uh, we were, I was talking to Luke about this earlier and, and he was just describing it as, you know, when you've just been through something emotional, you're really tired you think you're fine. You don't quite realize how you're feeling. And then maybe someone asks you like how you're doing and you just kind of, you just lose it a little bit. Yeah. Rory was so emotional. Uh, He was, he was weeping on television and he did this sky sports interview. I mean, it was awesome. Like to see a guy that's that in touch with his emotions and be able to express it. And, um, just to, to show how much he cares, you know, and then, there was this, you know, minute or so between the Sky Sports interview and then he had to go on with NBC. Um, and he kind of started crying again. Um, so he was definitely just feeling incredibly emotional. I think that there's a lot to that. I think there's a lot behind it. There's probably stuff that goes back to, you know, his entire golfing life and, and where he currently stands. Um, He's gotten more nostalgic. He has kind of realized the things that are important to him from this golf world. And this is a guy that obviously has plenty of money, uh, especially from playing golf. So it's not about that. It's about these important moments. And I think he feels a lot of pressure as the best player. I mean, there's just so much kind of going on that you could see coming out in that moment. And, And seeing the behind the scenes of that was pretty special. Yeah. You know what Rory looked like when he was giving those pressers? You know that emoji where it's like these really 
like heavy eyes, like welled up, like ready to cry. Yeah. That's that's what Rory looked like. The guy looked like he was ready to start bawling. Um, and if you didn't have any sympathy or you didn't really, you're not impartial to Rory, hopefully that interview uh, won you over at long last. I mean, he said any of the little boys and girls watching, um, hopefully you are inspired to want to play in the Ryder Cup or the Solheim Cup because it is extremely special to be a part of a team. Rory will spend the next two years not being a part of a team. He won't be. He's an individual for the next 103 weeks, essentially. Uh, and that's a long time. And then suddenly you're supposed to turn it on and have all these emotions. And um, he talked about it from early in the week. He said, I kind of need to conserve energy. I might be low energy. And he was. And he was, I think, in my opinion, kind of abnormally short with his answers in the press conference early in the week. And then he had next to no energy during his first couple matches and lost two matches in a day for the first time in his career. It was a really weird week for Rory. Um, not to keep rambling, but I, I definitely, I think that this event is like the ultimate event in, in players feeling like they are zoo animals and you have people constantly yelling at you you know, kind of poking you, asking you to do things, going on their schedule, not your schedule. And players take it in stride really well. And I just don't know if anyone takes it in stride quite as well as Rory McIlroy. Based off some of the things we saw this week, he is an extremely good sport about all this stuff. And uh, I don't, frankly, just a, a very classy dude who's a, a role model. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, we're all Rory McIlroy fans. And, um, you know, Rory's just such, like, a artist, you know? Like, he's, like, really in touch with himself, I think. Um, he sort of needs a muse to play his best golf, in my opinion. But it's, it's just, I think this whole past year, you know, between the pandemic, not being able to, you know, get back to Northern Ireland as much. He's not really working with his childhood co his 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 longtime coach. Um, becoming a father, playing nonstop along the way, not playing his best golf along the way. You know, I think these are all things that Rory kind of thinks about more than your average alpha professional golfer who's just kind of trying to go out there and I win think so i mean and, he talks to us about it so well he yeah, has to think about it exactly and and it's just you know i think right now what we're witnessing with rory is just like the guy just finding his center you know he's just trying to like work through it um it's nothing you know there's nothing wrong with rory he's just like very he's just like an, a high emotional uh, uh, IQ guy really I think um, and he's trying to make sense of it all and you know over the past year the recent trend is him looking for meaning through golf you know he's talked about he's talked about falling in love with the Olympics and and the Ryder Cup and and things like that so you know I think Rory is Rory's going to figure it out um, golf wise but uh, it's it's just another this outpouring of emotion really speaks to just the essence of who he is really yeah and i it's also the nature of the Ryder cup itself every year these guys play in four majors they play in x number of pga tour events etc but the Ryder cup there's a very finite number of these things that you get to play in in your yep. career 
I think as you get older, especially if you're a European player, you're really counting those as they go on. And, and it's such a special experience for these guys that I think when one doesn't go how you want it to go, it's hard. And he knows that he won't be playing with this old guard of, of yeah. players again, the guys that have been his teammates. And he knows that, you know, this was the first time probably that he has felt, I don't know, his own fallibility in the Ryder Cups. Even when he hasn't played his best, even when his record hasn't been that great, I think he was two and three last time out, he's still played all five sessions. So yep. this time he got sat down, that has to have an emotional impact. Just the feeling of like, you know, Rory, we think we might be better this session if you just sit this one out. Yep. That is That has to weigh on you. It's and never so, happened. And never so for happened. this to be a thing that happens every other year, you know what? If if guys play in a ton of Ryder Cups, they play in eight or they play in, you know, maybe nine or ten. Um, Rory is going to play in a handful more of these. He'll be awesome. You know, he'll be exciting to watch. But I'm sure that if you're someone that thinks about getting older and thinks yeah. about being nostalgic, Legacy. you really feel those, you know, two year. Yeah biannual semi-annual events feels like a lost opportunity for him yeah and honestly like think about the context rory's currently in which is seeing this stuff play out right before his eyes too i mean he's seeing ian poulter wonder if this is going to be his last Ryder cup uh <laughs> in same, his teammate he was his teammate exactly it was uh, bad uh, yeah you know lee westwood the same right like seeing these guys go through their own emotions of wondering wow am i ever going to play in one of these again uh rory not just taking on that to try to make it a good experience for them but wondering wow, like, when am I going to, when is my time going to come up? Um, it's just it's just a lot there. And I think Rory takes that stuff hard, you know? It's, yeah. it's what makes him great, but it's also just very much who he is. I think it's interesting that, and it says a lot, actually, that we spent a decent amount of time talking about the Americans, but we are very ready to go in-depth, incredibly in-depth, uh, about Rory and all the Europeans because yeah, they it's funny they gave us basically the best moments of the actual event still Shane Lowry making his putt on 18 was incredible um and going nuts alongside uh Tyrrell Hatton Tyrrell Hatton actually making his putt for a half um alongside John Rahm that was incredible too Ian Poulter winning his match he was extremely emotional Rory winning his singles match the Spaniards, Sergio and John Rahm, teaming up to basically look unbeatable and I think getting a lot closer in the process. Yes, I mean, 100%. Europe barely won any points, and the ones that they did win were all incredibly memorable. So, I it, mean, I guess it's easy to be a lovable loser, but yeah, they brought some special moments. I, I mean, I will never forget the fact that Europe had, I think it was six, it might have been six and a half. But by the time that the Ryder Cup was claimed... Europe had six points, maybe six and a half, so that they've played four and a half sessions and they have amounted to six, maybe six and a half points while the Americans were just off and running. Uh, Luke, you know what that says? Something's wrong. Something might be broke. Do we need to fix it? You wrote a really, really interesting look uh, at just the current roster 
<laughs> the current availability of European golfers really kind of analyzing who's in their 40s, who's in their 30s, who's in their 20s, and who the hell is missing. So can you please dive into that? Yeah, I mean, look, this Ryder Cup was like a disaster. <laughs> oh, boy. It, a disaster. It, it was so disheartening. I mean, and, and you know, Dylan, I'm, I'm European. You didn't win I'm this not one? used to losing Ryder Cups, especially <laughs> like this. Um, but, you know, I, the, the, this is, I can't remember the last time European came close to losing like this, uh, this severely. Um, the premise of my article, which I obviously really believe in, and it's something <laughs> that I was struck by thinking a lot um, this past week, it's that really when you boil it down, the core of European teams' success is not at the top of the order or really at the bottom of the order. It's in the, it's in the middle. Um, and what I mean by that, it's that it's this crop of zero to one major types, you know, four to five career rider cuppers who sort of not top of the world rankings, but, you know, somewhere between top 10 and top 30, let's say. Um, these sort of unspectacular players who fill out the middle of the order that have been the bedrock of this team. Guys like Justin Rose, Henrik Stenson, uh, Miguel Angel Jimenez, um, you know, guys who you can pair with different players. You can perhaps pair them with each other. You can bench them if you want. Are you kind of saying like selfless dudes in their 30s who are pretty accomplished? Yeah, I'm talking about the equivalent of whatever a lieutenant is in the military, right? Like we have generals, we have Poulter and Garcia and Westwood and like these these legends who are going to lead the team. But what we need is the next rank of people who can who who you can feel good about pairing Justin Rose Luke, with a rookie. Why don't you just start naming names? Daniel Berger. So you need you need a, a European Daniel Berger. Not even I wouldn't even say that. Like no, yeah. let's just let's name names as in like Francesco Molinari. That's a pretty huge void. Yeah, yeah. The European team to Martin Keimer. Keep going. Yeah, Molinari and Keimer and Danny Willett are the three I highlighted as perfect examples of guys who really should be in this team. They've, you know, Molinari was a hero at the last Ryder Cup. He's not in this team, and he's one of the most recent European major winners. He's the kind of guy who should be on his second, third Ryder Cup by now, very comfortable in this competition and ready to help a rookie be comfortable in this competition. Yeah. Yet he's nowhere to be found. Yeah. And so that leaves Europe in this really precarious position where they have the best player in the world, plus Rory McIlroy at the very top. And then they have guys, uh, you know, like Victor Hovland, who are fantastic, but they're they're rookies you can't you can't win Ryder Cups casting your lot in with uh rookies really um and you know before you get at me about the U U.S. having lots of rookies it's a bit weird because of the you know three years between Ryder Cups and stuff but European team success like I said is about being malleable in the middle of the order being able to usher in rookies without having to depend on them without having to depend on the top of the order either so yeah. that's what I think is like really alarming from my perspective it's those unspectacular next best guys that yeah aren't in this team and I mean, really should be if anything you have to just appreciate what the old guard has done is they they have seen the Matt Wallace's and the Danny Willits and these guys Thomas Peters kind of coming Nicholas Colserts guys that have have arrived for one Ryder Cup and not made it to the next Ryder Cup Rafa Cabrera Bayo 
fully involved. Uh, and now he wasn't. And I think that void was never more apparent than this week. Um, does it change the result? No, it doesn't change the result. But does it make you think uh, negatively about Europe's chances moving forward against, like we said, maybe some robotic, a- absolute Terminator Americans? It has to. Luke, you called it devastating. I think there's a reason for that. Yeah, I mean, like, Rafa Cabrera is someone who isn't like the household name, but he's a really, really good example of this. The guy was Europe's second highest uh, point scorer in Hazeltine. Um, he was 33, I believe, at the time. You know, kind of a trendy dark horse major pick. Um, he, 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 that was his last Ryder Cup appearance in 2016. He didn't kick on at all. It, didn't, it hasn't really done much on, on tour and hasn't made another Ryder Cup team. If that, in some alternate scenario where he does kick on, um, this is his third Ryder Cup. He's 38. He's comfortable in this competition. Perhaps you pair him with a Matt Fitzpatrick type or a Bern Wiesberger type, and that match goes a bit differently because he's playing instead of with, you know, Lee Westwood in alternate shot in Fitzpatrick's case, he's playing with you know, a peaking 38-year-old tried and tested Ryder Cupper in Cabrera Bayo. That is the problem. We have to default to the old guard because the the peaking lot of sort of 30-year-olds isn't there. And and it's a real problem for Europe. This is what happens though, right? I mean, this was always going to happen when you have a recipe that works and you keep going back to it. You keep going back. Eventually... You're going to go back one time too many. Um, I'm a Patriots fan. Bill Belichick always made sure to cut ties too early rather than hanging on too long. And that but, works. But, did, but Luke's not saying a very he didn't have any way. other choice. Like, is, You guys keep saying we went to the old guard too many times. Did they have another choice? I mean, the next choice for captain's pick was Justin Rose. That's the old guard. You keep looking down a little bit more. Like, I don't think... Padraig did anything wrong here. I think we're just talking about an exodus of well, like really good mid-level players. The next choice was only Justin Rose because that's he's part of the old guard. I mean, the next choice was really Victor Perez. It was Guido Migliozzi. <laughs> um, you know, it was like Robert McIntyre. Yeah, Robert McIntyre. These guys that that if they were American, if if the European team thought about things in the same way we do they would probably be on the team instead. but yeah, Or if he played any good golf in the last three months. But this thing has been, you know, they have had a system. It has been effective. There's a little bit of, of black magic to it, and this year the magic was just not enough to beat this American team. So I think it's fine. Yes, they could have lost 16-12 instead. It would have felt a little bit different, but either way, I think this was going to be a a rebuilding time before the next Ryder Cup. So it's going to be really interesting to see who fills in that space if this is a a pretty young team that we see in Italy. Well, yeah, I mean, and the, the one thing I'll say is that I don't think the problem is the old guard continuing to play reasonably well. And it's not the young and upper-comers like Bobby McIntyre. The problem is, is that, uh, you know, the problem is that Martin Keimer has won 
uh, two majors, you know, three if you include the players, uh, and <laughs> and and that he's he, driving a golf cart, and that he's driving a golf cart. Exactly. Yeah. It's the Francesco Molinari was a stud in the last Ryder Cup, and he's nowhere to be found. That's the problem. Uh, the American equivalent that I'm talking about with this is like a Justin Thomas type right who was an absolute pivotal part of this team it's the uh as sean said the exodus of those group of players that's the real problem here and i don't know what the solution is the solution is martin Keimer figuring out how to play better yeah um or it could take years like it could take a couple cycles for yeah. this to sort itself out until the victor hovland's become that but yeah it's 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 I don't quite know where Europe goes, but there's a real gap opening up and it's it's yeah. going to get ugly. Yeah, well, they have Rory. They have Rom. They have Young Hove. It was unfortunately apparent that in the in the losing press conference, Padraig Harrington started talking about the young guys who he thinks will be on many teams moving forward. He mentioned Rom. He mentioned Hove. He, he did not look forward and mention Matthew Fitzpatrick, who is... On, he's he's young, but uh, unfortunately, that dude had a very tough Ryder Cup. Has had multiple tough Ryder Cups now. He chunked a horrible iron from the fairway on 18, and is the reason why this was a record blowout. Yeah, that sucked. I that mean, was that was sad. That was that that just was not fun. It was not a you know, it's an inconsequential match in. In well, I guess not inconsequential because it was record breaking, but meaningless end of session match. The only person it really mattered, especially to, was Matt Fitzpatrick, who just wants a half point, just wants to get on the board in the Ryder Cup. Instead, I, th- I believe he's the only Ryder Cupper to ever play his first two Ryder Cups without getting on the board. Yeah, that's tough. Oh my goodness. Um, I don't know. We don't have to harp on him. It mattered to him. It also mattered to Padraig Harrington, who was the captain of the team yeah, and who was a player on both winning, record-breaking European teams. Mm. Yeah. He was on two European teams that scored 18.5 points, and now he was the captain of the European team that gave up 19. It's tough. It's not ideal. I mean, I'm sure he's second-guessing. But it's hard to imagine him whipping up any combination of pairings. That yes, that would be different. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's all kinds of hindsight that you can play here. And the first thing would be, well, what, you know, you, did you use Shane Lowry enough? Should Sergio have played five matches? I don't like doing that because from the jump, Steve Stricker's team was off and running. They went 3-1, and one, they went 3-1 and one again. They went three and one another time. Yeah, they were a freight train. They were a freight train. Yeah, yeah, but just because American team was better and played better doesn't mean you can uh, use it as an excuse to not critique Harrington's decisions. Like he made some bad ones out there. Let's list them. He played. He he was married to this analytics darling of a pairing, Westwood and Fitzpatrick. Oh. Which yeah. everybody said didn't pass the smell test, right? Like, doesn't seem to make any real. I think sense. I think there were people in Harrington's corner who were telling him that doesn't pass the smell test. Yeah, yeah exactly. He he played Casey and Westwood more in the first three sessions than he played Rory and Fleetwood. Talking about passing the smell test there. Um, 
you know, it just doesn't 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 quite make sense. So I, I think there are a few different decisions that, um, you know, him breaking up the Sergio Ram pairing, for instance. One thing I wrote about earlier in the week was that uh, when Europe win Ryder Cups, it's partly off the back of establishing a kind of yeah. uh, love affair pairing early in the competition. We had that in Ram and Garcia, and he immediately broke them up on the first day and then repaired them together and they were great again. So, you know, I think Harrington didn't wasn't dealt the best hand, certainly not as good a hand as Stricker, but he also didn't play that hand uh, especially well. I think that's pretty fair, Luke. Um, all right, let's wrap because it is well after 1 a.m. here. Um, our brains will be boggled before long. Sean, do you have anything else you want to ask about or answer or enduring memories from Whistling Straits? Uh, I think the course showed out in a way I didn't necessarily expect. I, Gosh, I thought about it a lot one year ago when I played it with a friend of mine, and I was like, you know, this could be a really good match play course. And I talked to the director of golf at the color courses, Michael Riley, and he's like, this will be a good match play course. But it's like, uh, is he just kind of feed me a line because he owns the place essentially and runs the show? Um, but it it really was a good match play course. Holy cow. I mean, the number of holes that you could drive. Bryson drove the first green today, and he won because he had to make an eagle. Um, the People drove the sixth green throughout the week. The 12th hole was one of the most mind-bending little par threes with a breeze. Um, it was tough today with a little bit of a breeze, a lesser breeze than it had yesterday. Uh, obviously, the par 5 16th was Justin Thomas's biggest hole of the week, I think on at least two, maybe three occasions. This was a, a great, great match play course, and I was happy to see that because uh, being the Wisconsinite, I know Whistling Straits history quite well. And at first, when Vijay Singh won in 2004, it played pretty tough. It was kind of breezy. And then when Martin Keimer won in 2010, it played a little bit easier. And then when Jason Day won in 2015, it played so damn easy. And now granted, a lot of that has to do with the weather. Uh, I was just pleased to see it really show out well because I, I know the people that work there and care about it, and I think... I think it had a very positive week. Those drone shots too. Woo! Looked like the Caribbean. Looked like Scotland. Um, I want to. I want to back that up though. One second. I want to back up because just because it's a great map match play course. Um, just because I like Wisconsin. One take I have is that the Ryder Cup should not return to places. It should go somewhere once succeed as a course that hosted a cup or don't succeed but we don't have that many home rider cups and i think they should only go to one course and then move on we have 25 home rider cups in the next 100 years dylan if we live from this moment where we're just about 30 until we're 90 we're gonna see 15 more 15 is what you're looking for 15 more home rider cups I'm not happy that we have to go back to Hazeltine so shortly. I imagine we'll probably end up going back to Valhalla at some point. We should bounce this thing around. Pebble Beach should host a Ryder Cup. Chambers Luke, Bay. 
who should host the Ryder Cup? Chamber Space should host the Ryder Cup. Endorse. Luke, what will you think about when you think back to attending this Ryder Cup in person? I'll, I'll think about three things. The first is my first Brewers game. Which Hell was, yeah. Which, yes. which was really good. I'm a proud Brewers fan. Um, Brewers clinched the division tonight. Clinched the division. Beat the, the beat the Mets the other day. So much better than the Mets. And um, <laughs> so, you know, that was good fun seeing those sausages run around the baseball diamond too. Um, second was uh, my opinion of John Rahm. You know, I, I it, it was seeing this guy is just such an alpha. And, you know, totally. seeing him play this well in person, I was just struck by how um, amazing he was from tee to green. He seems to do every part of the game well and have the clutch gene. He, he, I know he lost today, but that's because Scotty Scheffler had to make four straight birdies on his first four holes to, to do it. I believe you said you enjoyed watching him give Brooks Kepka a wedgie. Yeah, multiple times. That, that's what it was. I mean, Brooks Kepka to me is like this guy wants to be an alpha, this high school bully type, <laughs> and and John Rahm is like the dad who doesn't want to get into trouble, but then if somebody comes on his lawn, he'll pick a fight with the young kid and win. Like he absolutely <laughs> gave Brooks Kepka a wedgie, um, and he is just such an alpha to his core and kind of a nice guy too. So it was just so impressed with John Rahm. And and my my final thing was, uh, you know, it was a pretty tough week to be a European golf fan. So I just want to say thank you to both you guys for, you know, letting me vent my opinions to both of you because oh, it, it, it was pretty ugly out there at points. The final thing I'll leave you with is, is to me, this week was a reminder of why the Ryder Cup matters. And I think it wasn't the play or the, the competition so much is seeing the guys after they finished celebrating. And the reason we talk about it so much is because it's a way to make sense of this whole golf world. These guys work so hard to get into the conversation to be, you know, among the best European golfers or among the best American golfers so that they can be a part of this exclusive crew that gets to go and compete in this and play their ass off and you know i know in the past sometimes there people will criticize like oh they'll see all oh, the americans lost and they're still out like hanging out that night with the european team or something like that but seeing it in person it makes all the sense in the world like these guys are devastated they're they're heartbroken by not winning the europeans certainly are that way but yeah, it still makes sense that they're going to enjoy each other's company, that they're going to make the most of it, um, and that they're going to appreciate this this time together um, because there's just nothing else like it in this golf world. Not just to have a team competition, not just to all be together, but to have uh, reached this peak, this pinnacle of the golf world, and to be able to celebrate being on that mountaintop together. I think that that's why the Ryder Cup is different. Yeah, it's different. Brooks Kepka said it's different. The next Ryder Cup, September 29th, 2023. We're going to have a lot more podcasts before then. Italy. Uh, until then, <laughs> in many, many more times. Uh, thank you, Luke. Thank you, Dylan. This was The Drop Zone. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>